to heaven, Jesus said that once the Holy Spirit had come to empower them, the church would bear witness to him. And where would they do that? Well, he said, you do that, you'll do that here in Jerusalem, and then you'll do that in all Judea and Samaria, going further and further, and then you'll do that to the ends of the earth. It must have felt daunting, mustn't it, to those early disciples when they heard that. But the Holy Spirit was going to make sure that happened, and that's what we see in Acts. And it's still daunting. Reaching out and moving out into new areas is never easy. Most of us instinctively shrink from that challenge. But keeping in step with the Holy Spirit of God means stepping out in faith. We saw that, didn't we, in that wonderful video from BMS. We saw people reaching out, stepping out, telling people about Jesus, planting new churches, feeding new disciples in difficult and dangerous areas, doing new things. And we saw God's blessing amidst the trials. Until now in Acts, all the followers of Jesus have been Jewish, peoples whose home or heritage were in Jerusalem or Judea. But today, we're going to be looking at Acts chapters 8 and 10 mainly. And we'll be seeing how Jesus' words, that his message would be taken to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, start to be fulfilled. So let me summarise Acts 8 first of all. Acts is a story. It's a true story but also a story which has been very carefully crafted by Luke, who wrote it. And Luke is one of the New Testament's most stylish writers. He's very careful about the way he writes. He writes to communicate something, and he thinks very carefully about how he's communicating it. So you will get most out of this if you read it yourself, if you go home and you look at it for yourself. But please do have your Bibles open in front if you've got one, or if you've got one on your phone or something like that. And look at Acts chapter 8. And as I summarise the story, ask yourself who the main player is. Who is the main player in this story? But let me give you a clue. The main player is not Philip or Peter or Cornelius. So who is it? If we want to see the church today alive and active... We need to look out not for what human leaders and personalities do, but what the main player is still doing. I'm going to switch my microphone off and have a good cough, because I feel as if I'm speaking... Right. So let me start by showing you um, three things from Acts Acts chapter 8. Firstly, persecution. Persecution is what got things started. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4 say this. On that day, this is the day Stephen was put to death, the first martyr. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Do you see what Luke's doing there? He's echoing Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The gospel will go, starting here in Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria. And he's saying because of persecution, because of the scattering of the church... Ah, fantastic. 
the apostles were, that's better, the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. And then in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Persecution got things moving. We read almost the same thing in chapter 11, verse 17. Verse 19, sorry. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. The word is moving out because of persecution. We thought particularly about persecution a couple of weeks ago. Persecution is not something we'd wish on anybody and not on ourselves either. But as the early church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's when the church suffers that the church grows. And in Acts we see that if it hadn't been for persecution, the church might well have stayed there very comfortably in Jerusalem. So who caused the persecution? Well, that's a complex theological question. Let's not bother about that. But let's keep it practical. Are there hard things? Are there uncomfortable things? Are there dangerous things which God wants to use to make you get up and go? Then we see as we move further into the chapter, we've, we've seen persecution. Now we're going to see conflict Let me read to you verses 5 to 8. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Conflict with impure spirits who shrieked. Conflict, we see later in this chapter, with enslaving materialism, verses 19 and 23. Conflict caused by the proclamation of the name of Jesus, in verses 4 and 12. Conflict caused by the coming of the Holy Spirit, in verse 17. Conflict which results in joy, verse 8. Conflict with the people, conflict as people who are seen beyond the pale, the Samaritans, coming to faith and being baptized in verse 12. So who caused the conflict? And are we too inclined to run away from conflict? Should we not rather be celebrating when we come into conflict with the powers of darkness? Something for you to discuss in your small groups as you think about this passage during the week. Are we a bit too quick to run away from persecution and from conflict when these may be the ways through which God is working? And then, uh, so we have the account of Philip in Samaria, and we haven't got time to look at it in detail, but then we come to the account uh, later in the chapter of Philip and the Ethiopian. And this is an account that takes place where? It takes place in the desert, in the wilderness. And the desert is a place where nobody wants to be. Philip had been having a very successful ministry in Samaria, but where does the Spirit send him? Verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. The desert road, going to nowhere very much. 
Paul is told, Philip is told to leave his ministry in Samaria and to go into the desert. But what happens in the desert? Philip meets a man from Ethiopia. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury. Uh, and um, I won't read that whole account. Many of you will know it. But the, the long and short of it is that Philip ends up talking to this man and proclaiming Jesus to him. Philip meets a man, a spiritual seeker, and yet who by the conventions of the day was excluded from access to God because he was a Gentile and because he was a eunuch. So who sent Philip into the desert? And who sent the Ethiopian into the desert? And who arranged for him to be reading Isaiah chapter 53, the chapter about the suffering servant? And who enabled Philip to proclaim the gospel? And who created a desire in the Ethiopian to be baptized? And who then whisked Philip away again? Let's not despise the desert places, but instead expect to find God at work there and to be ready to get into the chariot and talk to somebody or into the water to confess our faith. So to summarise, chapter 8, what have we seen? We've seen persecution, we've seen conflict, we've seen the desert. All things to avoid. Or perhaps not. Not if God is calling you into those places. So here's a question for you to ponder. Are there things about your circumstances or your experiences? Are there things about your workplace or your family other things about your personality or even your body, things which you find frustrating and difficult and draining, and you don't want to be you don't want to be like that. You don't want to be in those places. But maybe those things may actually be God's place for opportunity, for growth, for fruitfulness, for service. Persecution, conflict, and desert. What an unpromising load of scenarios. And yet the Spirit of God was at work. Let's pause for a moment. Let's just ponder. Is there something that God could be saying to you and about your life and about your fruitfulness despite your situation and circumstances? Have a think. If you want to, you can talk to the person next to you. I know some of you, your blood pressure will immediately rise when I say that. But you, can, you could do that. Or you could just think and shut your eyes and ponder. Let's do that for a minute and then we'll move on. Okay, we're going to, to skip chapter 9 and we're going to move into chapter 10. We're skipping chapter 9 because Barry's going to do that um, in two weeks' time. So next Sunday is Cafe Church and then two weeks' time we'll be coming back to Acts and looking at chapter 9. I'm just going to point out one thing in Acts chapter 9. Uh, so Acts chapter 9 is, is the account of the conversion of Paul on his road to Damascus, on the road to Damascus. And when Paul, this zealous Jew, this zealous Jewish nationalist, meets Jesus, he's given a new mission. And what's the mission he's given? Well, it's a mission to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, verse 15 of chapter 9. 
Paul had prized his Jewishness. So being told to go to Gentiles would have been a, a severe challenge to him. But Acts is showing us a theme. Samaritans, Ethiopians, Paul's commission to go to Gentiles. What's going to happen next? Well, that's when we move into Acts chapter 10. And again, I'm not going to get into the detail of this, this glorious story of Peter and Cornelius. But I just want to show you, again, three things which I think Luke is emphasizing by the careful way that he is writing this account for us. First, firstly, there's a, there's a theme of progression. Let me explain what I mean by that. So we're introduced at the start of Acts chapter 10 to Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion. He knows nothing about Jesus Christ, but he's a pious man. And he has a vision of an angel telling him to get hold of a man called Peter. And, and this vision is actually mentioned four times in this uh, narrative. So... Um, Acts chapter 10, uh, you get the, the main account right at the start. One day at about three in the afternoon, this is verse three, uh, Cornelius had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of, the God, of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send a man to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the tanner whose house is by the sea. We get an account of this vision, but it's not a very... It's an interesting vision in the sense that he, he, it's dramatic, but the concept of the vision isn't terribly exciting. It's quite transactional. Basically, the, the message of the vision is go and find somebody. Go and find this person called Peter. There's no particular um, you know, theological significance to it. He's not told anything about God or anything like that. He's, he's encouraged that his prayers have been answered, but he's basically told go and do something very, very specific. Then in verse 22, we get another account on, on someone else's lips. The men he sent uh, recount the vision. They say, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. So Cornelius is, it was actually told something that we weren't told about the first time, which that he was told by God that when Peter comes, he's going to have a message for you. He's going to have a message for you. Flip forward to the third reference to this vision in verse 33. So this is now Cornelius recounting the vision to Peter. And he says, So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Cornelius had been told by God that this guy Peter is going to come and he's going to tell you something very significant. And I wonder what Peter thought as he heard this. He'd come all this way, he'd come into Cornelius' house, and he's suddenly told, you've got a message for us. And I don't think Peter at this stage quite knew what the message was. He'd had his own vision, and we'll come back to that. But he wasn't specifically told what he had to say to Cornelius. I had a stage in my life where I used to get a recurring dream that I'd, suddenly, I'd certainly turn up somewhere and be told I had to give a speech or a talk, and, and, I didn't, and I, there was no warning. Um, I don't get that anymore, fortunately, but, um, but it's a bit like that for Peter here. You know, he turns up and he's been, you've got a message for us, Peter. What is it? And you kind of, you hear the cogs whirring, and we'll come back to that. But, so that's the third time. And then the fourth time is actually in chapter 11, verse 14. He will bring you, and, and again, um, this is a, an account referring back to Cornelius' vision right at the start. He will bring you a message 
Ah, now we're going to get told what the message is. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. It's a salvation message. And Luke, who's a very skillful writer, has been building us up to the fact that this is a message that's not just about somebody coming and going. It's a message about God's salvation. There's a growing emphasis that as we see through this story that this is a message for outsiders, a message of salvation. And notice how Peter himself, when he gets this vision, he gets it three times. Um, Verses 11 to 16 there recounts Peter's vision. So Peter's given a vision and he gets it three times. It's the sheet coming down from heaven with all these, uh, to him, hideously unclean creatures that he's told to eat. And then see, you can track how Peter's understanding also progresses. So he starts off and he sees that this vision of the sheet and being told to eat everything on it, it's first of all, it's a vision that tells him not to call anything unclean, verse 15. But then in verse 28, he's progressed somehow to realizing that it's not just a vision about calling things unclean, it's a vision about not calling anyone unclean. And then a bit further, you realize that he started to preach the gospel and he's realized that this was a vision about calling outsiders to faith, not just not calling them unclean, but positively calling them in. And then at the end of the chapter, we get this glorious situation where Peter's giving a sermon and then the Holy Spirit just sort of interrupts and everyone gets filled with the Holy Spirit and starts speaking in tongues. God actually intervenes. There's this wonderful sense of progress And notice what's going on in Peter's mind. So he starts off, when he first sees his vision, how does he respond? Verse 14, surely not, Lord. I don't like this vision. I don't like what you're telling me to do. And in verse 17, we're told that Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision. He was pondering it. And then in verse 19, we're told that Peter was thinking about it. And then in verse 29, he's still not sure. He says says to the messengers, may I ask why you sent for me? He's still not quite sure, but he's he's on a journey. How are you progressing in your faith? What is the place of questioning and wondering and thinking and pondering and meditating in your spiritual growth? Is there something that God is telling you repeatedly, a little more specifically each time? And you really need to do something about. So there's a sense of progress through the story. Then there's another theme that I think Luke wants us to notice. When you read this chapter yourself back at home, look out for all the times Luke uses the word all or every. Look out for them. It's just full of them. Let me give you a little example, which is Peter's speech, starting in verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judah, beginning in Galilee after the baptism of John that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil, because God was with him. 
We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead, i.e. everybody. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. The theme of this passage, the theme of the Acts, the theme of the gospel is a big, wide, universal, all and every kind of message. It's not a narrow, exclusive, limited one. And it took a lot of prompting by the Holy Spirit and then a big step on Peter's part to grasp this. But notice too what we're not being told. This account is not saying that everybody is going to be saved. It's not saying everyone's going to heaven. It's not saying it doesn't matter how you respond to the gospel message. On the contrary, the point of Acts and of the New Testament is that the message about salvation through Jesus Christ is available to everybody, but everybody needs to be told about it. And everybody needs to respond so that they might be saved. All the prophets we read in verse 43 testify about Jesus that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What's the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16? For God so loved the world that whoever, it's a big, wide gospel, whoever believes in him, ah, but you need to believe. Whoever believes in him, and if we need to believe, you need to be told. And the message of Acts is to encourage us to go out and tell people that they might be saved. And then finally, in this chapter, we see the theme of response. One last thing to notice in the passages we've looked at. And here's a question to see how carefully... You might have looked at these chapters. You might think, well, I know these chapters very well. But look at all the main encounters in Acts 8, 9, and 10. What happened at the end of all of them? What happened after the Samaritans came to believe in in chapter 8, verse 12? What happens after the Ethiopian eunuch came to believe in chapter 8, verse 36? What happened after Paul came to believe on the road to Damascus in chapter 9, verse 18. What happened after Cornelius and his family and household accepted the gospel in chapter 10, verse 48? The clue is I'm standing on it. They got baptised. Thank you. They responded through baptism. They all got baptised. Probably at that stage, each one of them had limited understanding and had thought through only to a limited extent what they, what they really believed in, but they knew they turned to Jesus. And Acts will show us that working these things out, the theology and the implications and the practicalities, are things that do need to be thought through. And in a sense, Acts 15 particularly is a description of that. But that's a job for another day as we catch up with what the Holy Spirit's doing. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to respond. Today is the day to say, yes, we want to follow Jesus. We believe this message and we choose to take a step of faith and get baptised. 
So let me try and um, bring this all to a conclusion. What have, we, what have we noticed this morning as we looked at these two glorious chapters in Acts? In Acts chapter 8, we saw how God is at work in the difficult places, in the places we might want to avoid, in the persecution, the conflict, and the desert. And we've been encouraged to expect that when God is at work, we will experience trouble. So be on the lookout for that. Are there things in your life, in the place where you live and work, in the, if there, if there are things about you and your personality and your body which you find troubling and difficult and draining and frustrating, but which may be places where God is creating room for his blessing? And then we've seen, particularly in Acts chapter 10, how God is at work in people. He communicates to people in different ways. Read these chapters, you'll see him communicating through visions, through scripture, through people, through angels, through circumstances. But he also speaks to people as they ponder and as they reflect and as they question and as they think. And we need to be open, don't we, today to God's voice. Open to hear open to obey, and especially open to doing new and scary things. But open above all to believing in Jesus, responding in faith, getting baptised, taking those first steps. But don't do that if you want a comfortable life. Because we've seen how then God pushes people out, outside their comfort zones, expanding their boundaries and expectations, challenging and growing them. If you're just looking for an easy, comfortable life, Christianity is not for you. Read the Gospels. Read Acts. This is a life for people who want to be committed to something, to someone Of course there are times when God comforts us. When we're distressed and needy and we're desperate, then God is a God of all comfort and we've all experienced that. But the life of discipleship of Jesus is not one where he says, come for a cushy time. Do you sometimes think that God has grown out of that kind of expectation? That he's now become a God of establishment and tradition and boundaries. A God who avoids challenge and danger and is happy to be contained in old cracked wineskins. A God of the few and the privileged, not the many and the all. I think not. See, I am doing a new thing, says the Lord. What new thing is he doing in you, in us? Are we looking for it? Are we hoping for it? Are we praying for it? And above all, we've seen this morning that it's a message about Jesus Christ, which has to be taken out. We have seen that people are now defined by how they respond to that message, not by their ethnicity or anything else, not by their race or heritage. How we respond to the message of Jesus, how we respond to Jesus himself is what really matters. The good news about Jesus is for everybody, but it's only good news for those who believe. Jesus said in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then two verses later he says, whoever does not believe stands condemned because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Will you take a step today? Will you take a step to come in from the margins into the light and life of Jesus Christ? And having done so, those of us who've already done that, will you take a step to go out to the margins with this good news, with this great message that Jesus offers to everybody? Let's again pause. Let's reflect on what we've heard this morning. What's the Holy Spirit of God saying to you? Is there something that he's been saying for a while and he's, and he's saying it again, like he said to Peter and Cornelius, he's repeating himself, perhaps a little more sharply each time. What's he saying to you? Dear God, we thank you that you welcome us in, whoever we are. We might think that we're excluded because of our background and our past behaviour, all kinds of things that uh, the devil might make us think exclude us from your presence. But we thank you that you welcome us in. We thank you that you welcome us in through Jesus and through faith in him through making our allegiance to you as we believe, as we are baptised and as we walk forward on our journey of faith and as we then go out into dangerous and difficult and troubling places for you. Help us to be willing to follow and to go for the glory of your wonderful name. Amen. Our final song is one of invitation. And you might, be, you might sing these words thinking of yourself as 